So I'm Holden Karnofsky. Um, I'm co-founder of GiveWell, but I'm here to talk about the Open Philanthropy Project, uh, which is different, so I'm going to skip right to what that is um, and give a little bit of background. Um, right now, the Open Philanthropy Project is pretty hard to follow, despite our interest in transparency, because we don't have a separate website and we don't have a separate organization, and both those things are going to change. Um, and so hopefully soon we'll have a website up um, that makes it easier to find everything that we do. Right now it's kind of scattered over the GiveWell blog and the GiveWell website. Um, and we also are part of GiveWell right now. We're housed at GiveWell, um, but that is also going to change. We're, we're hoping to become a separate organization. So what is the Open Philanthropy Project? Um, basically, we are trying uh, to uh, find the best philanthropic giving opportunities we can and share the reasoning behind our decisions to help other philanthropists learn as well. Uh, the way that it started is when uh, we at GiveWell met Carrie Tuna and Dustin Moskovitz, uh, Dustin being one of the co-founders of Facebook, uh, as well as Asana, and the two of them were thinking about, you know, how are we going to give away the majority of our wealth uh, in our lifetimes? And this is a different question from the question GiveWell donors are asking. GiveWell donors might ask, you know, how do I give away $5,000 now without doing much work, without having much time? Um, Carrie and Dustin were asking, how do we give away perhaps several billion dollars and we have you know, the rest of our lives to do it? So it's a different question. Um, but a thing that the two have in common is that uh, there's very little to read about either one. And if you're just getting started and you want to learn the ropes and you want to get involved in some, you know, some debates where some people say you should fund this and some people say you should fund that, uh, there's just very little of that in the philanthropic world. And that's something that we're looking to change. Um, and so in partnership with Carrie and Dustin, we started the Open Philanthropy Project. At the time, it was called GiveWell Labs. Um, and the idea was just to do what, do what one would normally do, whatever that means, um, to figure out how to give as effectively as possible and share more of what we're doing. Um, so that's basically what we are. In terms of what we do and in terms of what I'm going to focus my talk on, um, we, you know, so far, most of the work we've done is cause selection, or what a lot of people here tend to call cause prioritization. Um, and our feeling, and I think this does make us different from most other major philanthropists, is that choosing which causes to focus on um, is arguably the most important decision a philanthropist makes. It's, uh, you know, once you decide you're interested in, for example, criminal justice reform or AI safety, um, you're going to get to know the people in that space, get to know the issues, maybe have staff that do these things, get to know the literature. Um, it's very hard to evaluate a giving opportunity in an unfamiliar cause. It takes a ton of effort. You need a lot of background, a lot of context. It can be pretty quick to evaluate a giving opportunity when you already know the people, you already know the issues, you already know the organizations. Um, it's very hard to go back on a cause or to change your mind a lot, or it can be a bad thing because of, because of the work you do to build up this basic knowledge. Um, and so to us, choosing causes is kind of the first and maybe most important step in doing great philanthropy, and that's been most of the work we've done so far has been focused around that. Um, we do cause selection with a very particular frame. So, you know, you could, they, people mean different things here when they talk about cause prioritization. They talk about, you know, where should I devote my career and where should I, you know, do this and that. Uh, for us, this is a very direct question. The question is, if I'm a major philanthropist, uh, where am I, you know, what causes should I choose to do the most good possible? Um, and so the way that we've gone about that, I mean, first, we made kind of a giant internal list of causes, and that comes from all sorts of places, like scanning what all the philanthropists do today, like just generally having conversations, following the news, following the issues, being informed, talking to people. Um, 
the, you know, the interesting part for me comes when you have a list of causes and you want to start narrowing it down. Um, and the way that we've done that is that we basically have a big list of causes and we take some of them, the ones that look most promising to us, and we do very quick what we call shallow investigations. So we'll take some political issue, say criminal justice reform or some global catastrophic risk, and we'll ask basically how important is this issue, how tr meaning how many people does it affect, how much does it affect them, how tractable is it, meaning you know, what can we actually do about this issue or this opportunity, um, and finally how crowded is it, who else works on it. And all else equal, uh, we as philanthropists would rather work on causes that are sort of not getting enough attention for how important they are and how promising they are. So that's, that's the basic framework there. Um, and what we'll do is we will do a very short investigation of a cause, a shallow investigation, where you might talk to one to three people in the field and read some of the papers they send you and say, okay, I went from knowing absolutely nothing about this cause to knowing something and having the basics. If it's incredibly crowded and a million philanthropists work on that, I probably know that now. If it's you know, incredibly unimportant and it barely affects anyone, I probably know that now. Um, but it's shallow. And then what we do is we take the ones that stand out on those criteria and we do deeper investigations, which often involve kind of trying to get a representative sampling of the field and kind of understand at a high level what everyone is doing and what some of the gaps are and what it would actually look like uh, for us to work in the area. And we publish these. So we often publish them quite a bit after we complete them um, for various reasons. But we do, um, you know, we, do, we do publish these on our website and we say, how important is this cause? How tractable is it? How crowded is it? And here's our reasoning. Um, so what we did last year uh, is basically we've when we've made our, our list of causes, our big list of causes we might work on, uh, we've noticed that there's, there's four categories that pop up again and again. And they don't capture every cause of interest, but they capture a lot of them. And I put them up on the, you know, on the slide that I have. Um, one of them, you know, policy-oriented philanthropy. So a lot of people ask me sort of like, how could criminal justice reform be competitive with helping people in the developing world uh, by, for example, sending them bed nets? And the answer is that uh, if if you can spend a certain amount of money to influence a policy change, whether it's by educating people, by helping you know, build the case for an issue, um, then you know, policy, government, just affects massive amounts of people, have massive budgets compared to philanthropy, and you can get real leverage in a sense. Um, you can affect a ton of people with a relatively small amount of money through that vector. And so I actually think there is a case when you see political opportunity, when you see a chance for some you know, relatively contained action and expense on your part to influence what a government does, there is a chance to say, this is a big multiplier, this is a big impact, and it could potentially be competitive with, for example, sending bed nets directly to the global poor. Um, that's one category for us. And you know, another category is global catastrophic risks, where the logic here is that uh, you know, the, the very biggest risks that could threaten the entire sort of trajectory and long-term future of civilization, um, there's not anyone in particular who seems to have the right incentives to work on those risks. And so it may be a good fit for philanthropy. And furthermore, you know, again, if you could spend a contained amount of money to reduce the risk of a really global threatening you know, event, um, that is another source of leverage. That's another place where you could get an unusual amount of good accomplished for your dollar. So our first kind of really dedicated year on open philanthropy, which was last year, was devoted to those first two categories, and kind of, they're not, they're not causes, they're like giant categories of causes, um, was devoted to prioritizing causes within those. 
And we do generally treat them separately uh, for reasons that I can get into a little bit later. Uh, but what we basically did is we did a bunch of shallow investigations, some medium investigations, um, had a lot of conversation. In the politics case, we had a convening with a lot of people whose input we wanted in D.C. Um, and then at the very beginning of this year, and it was February we decided and March we published, um, we, we put out kind of a Google sheet that says, here's how we've assessed each cause we've looked into, here's how we're going to prioritize them, and here are our goals for the next year. And, you know, the, the takeaway is, is not super simple, but to give a quick summary of where we're at, um, you know, there's, there's a couple things going on. One is, uh, so in terms, of, in terms of standout causes, I've, I've put some of them up on this slide. Uh, for policy, one of the causes that stood out to us on tractability was criminal justice reform. So, you know, there's a lot, there's, it's generally hard in policy to say uh, how tractable a cause is because a lot of times something looks politically impossible um, and then no one expects it to change and then it changes. So public opinion and political dynamics can change in sort of unpredictable ways. Um, and certainly, you know, when an issue is in the news and Congress is debating a bill, we don't consider that a great window of opportunity for a philanthropist because in that case, it's often just too late to really do the things a philanthropist can do, like building up a field and increasing organization's capacity. Like, we're not the ones who are going to be the right people to be, like, in the debate that Congress is having at the time. Um, but what we do consider especially tractable is something like criminal justice where there's, there's a couple semi-durable seeming reasons that there may be more political opportunity here than elsewhere. Um, one of them is pretty simple, which is that criminal justice is a state and local issue. Um, and, you know, if, you, if you're working on an issue like labor mobility where the only way to get a win is to get a win at the national level in D.C., um, that is a pretty limiting situation, especially given kind of where D.C. is at today um, and how hard it is to get things done there. If you can pick your battles between a variety of states and localities, uh, you may have better chances. The other thing that makes criminal justice interesting is that, you know, there was much more of a tough-on-crime mentality uh, a few decades ago or a couple decades ago. Um, and since then, crime has gone down quite a lot. Incarceration has gone up quite a lot, though not necessarily... That isn't necessarily the reason crime has gone down a lot. Um, and state budgets have gotten pretty tight. And so now you have a phenomena like Right on Crime, uh, which is, you know, a group that is looking to cut. It's a conservative group, and it has, you know, people like Grover Norquist appearing on its website um, saying that we need to cut down on prison sentences and cut down on unnecessary incarceration. Um, it's big government. It's expensive. Uh, it makes it hard to keep state budgets in line and cut taxes. Um, and so this is, you know, for us, a rare political opportunity to help really disadvantage people who are suffering a lot and do it by cutting the size of government and doing something that kind of, you know, appeals to conservatives. So um, I'm not sure how long the dynamics are going to be this way, but it is different from something being in the news for a month. Um, you know, over the past several years, there's been a wave of state-level reforms uh, where, you know, different states have changed their policies to try and cut down on prison populations. And we believe that that is going to be an opportunity for the next several years at least. Um, so the way that we think about this is, you know, most political causes are not, do not look especially good or bad on tractability. They just kind of look hard to assess and hard to predict. Um, but among the ones that stood out, because there are some other causes where something interesting is going on, where public opinion is changing, um, Criminal justice reform looks like the most important and the least crowded, in some sense, of those, of the, of the causes that stand out in tractability. And that's kind of the method we use. 
um, you know, one might try to choose causes by creating one unified expected value calculation. Uh, the problem is that you've got, you've got major high error terms in each of these three categories. And if you put everything into one equation, you're just going to have a massive pile of uncertainty that may all hinge on one kind of tenuous assumption you made. Um, but the way that we do this is we're able to say, we're able to, to reasonably confidently classify issues as high importance, medium, or low importance, um, and ditto with tractability and crowdedness. And then what we do is we look for issues that kind of stand out on one dimension while being better on the other dimensions than the other standouts. So with criminal justice, we see a window of opportunity, high tractability. Um, and, a, and among other windows of opportunity, we think criminal justice does the best on the other two criteria. So that's our pretty consistent approach. Uh, labor mobility looks like kind of the opposite profile. So the idea behind labor mobility is that uh, one of the, you know, we're probably the best anti-poverty intervention we know of is when someone steps across the border from a poor country to a rich country. Same person, same skills, but they often earn multiple times, maybe 10 times as much money, much of which they can send back to their family. Um, even a small increase in immigration would have, we believe, massive humanitarian benefits to the immigrants. Um, and we also believe that any, any purported harms to the receiving country, the sending country, are likely to be overblown um, and not, you know, not major, and if, if, if probably actually positive for both the sending and receiving country in the end. Um, this is an issue that I think the tractability is, is really bad. I mean, it's just, you know, there's no good reason to think that we have an opportunity to affect immigration policy anytime soon. Um, but the importance is kind of off the charts. And so in the category of what we call ambitious long shots, uh, where there's you know, really high importance, um, this one actually, to us, beats the other super important causes um, because it's so much less crowded. So you know, there are a lot of people who debate immigration policy, but they tend to focus on what should we do with people who are already here, and how can we get more high-skilled immigrants in. Um, and the issue of low-skilled immigrants and the poverty-fighting implications of their immigration, uh, there's almost no one who works on it. So that is another priority cause for us. Now, another important difference between these two causes is their suitability for a full-time person. So right now, the Open Philanthropy Project's biggest mission and our biggest desire is to increase our staff, increase our capacity, be able to do more things. Um, I think the ideal way possibly to, to do really good work in a cause is to have at least one person, who we, we tend to call a program officer, who would spend all their time really living and breathing that cause and then funding the best things in it. Um, in the case of criminal justice reform, it's a well enough developed field and a well enough developed issue and there's enough organizations and enough complexity that we think we can and kind of need to have a full-time person working on that cause. Labor mobility, by contrast, I don't know who we'd hire, and I don't really know what they would do um, because so few people work on this cause. So they are pretty different. Um, and that's why when we set our goals for this year, when we looked at our priorities, we, we basically had a goal of making one in the next six months, which is six months ago, so now we've done it, um, making one of what we call a big bet. Um, a big bet can be hiring someone, or it can be making a major grant. And I think different things make sense for different causes. And what we've tried to do is we've tried to create kind of a long prioritized list because what we don't want to do is take our number one cause, interview a bunch of people, not like anyone, and then feel like we're stuck hiring the best person we could. What we do want to do is have lots of causes we're interested in and only make a big bet when we feel great about both the cause and the grant or the hire. Um, and so what we did at the beginning of this year is we 
you know, we had this list of priorities that is, is the way it is up there, um, and we said, you know, we would love to make a hire, we would love to make a grant, let's see what we can do, and we kind of tried one thing at a time. And as it happened, we did get, you know, we got our first choice in this case, uh, which was we have Chloe Coburn, uh, formerly at the ACLU, coming on in August to, or this is August, coming on at the end of this month um, to work on criminal justice reform full time, and then, you know, what we're going to, and, and that was a long process, and that was kind of, you know, a major part of where the last six months went was really deciding what that role is going to be, how we're going to interview for it, how we're going to assess it, whom we're looking for, um, and then actually conducting all of that. Um, and then getting that done was, was kind of our major output on policy uh, for, the, for the last six months. And then for the next six months, um, we have already done some work to look for a macroeconomic policy person. That's another cause where we think we, we could have a full-timer. Um, we are working on a factory farming search right now. Um, and we've kind of generally prioritized things where we might be able to hire someone because the thing we want most is to grow our staff. And then after we wrap up those searches, which I actually think might be soon, um, then I think we would look a little more seriously. Alexander Berger is kind of the cross-policy person. And instead of spending his time on hiring, he would spend more of his time looking at some of these causes like labor mobility and say, how do we get something to happen here? Though we have been making some grants and doing some small things there at the same time. So that's the basic framework. That's how we basically operate. Um, I'm going to talk about global catastrophic risks. Then I'll say just like a word or two about the rest, and then I'll take questions. Um, so global catastrophic risks, uh, we took, it's, it's a very analogous situation. We used a very similar process uh, last year. We were looking into things. In this case, importance kind of means scariness. Um, it means kind of like what could we imagine happening, how likely is it, and how much could it like disrupt global civilization in the long-term future. Um, and it's kind of a different, you know, it's using a different set of philosophical assumptions, which I, I can, like, speak to during the Q&A. But one, one thing we do is we kind of different, you know, different parts of what we're doing are kind of incorporating different worldviews because we don't want our whole project to get stuck in one worldview and live or die by that worldview, given our ambitions of kind of influencing a large number of donors and moving a really massive amount of money. Um, so, you know, with global uh, catastrophic risk, the focus is more on the long-term future. And, you know, we ask... If, if civilization were to, to go extinct or otherwise get completely derailed in the next 100 years, what would be the most likely candidates for doing that? Um, I would say, and to, to keep it kind of short for now, I would say probably a pandemic or an AI accident or misuse um, would be the most likely for that. And also, both of those causes, you know, we, we believe there are things you can do. We believe they're reasonably tractable. And we believe that they're, you know, not overly crowded. I think with biosecurity, there's certainly a lot of government money, but there's very little philanthropy. Um, and so the chance to kind of, you know, find better ways to spend money and find ways to improve the system looks pretty major. Again, biosecurity is a cause where we think we can and need to hire a full-time person. So we have a search going on there. Um, now, AI risk is something that we, we did a little bit differently from how we've done other things because uh, last year... We, you know, we're pretty familiar with AI risk, and I think probably people here are too after, you know, after yesterday's panel and whatnot. Um, and you know, our main question about it for a long time has been, like, we're only hearing one side of the argument. Um, we know that a lot of the people who are most responsible for the progress on AI uh, recently seem to kind of not be engaging or not be interested or not be in agreement that AI is a serious risk, or at least that it's one we should be working on today. Um, so we've wanted to know for a long time, like, 
what is that side of the story? Is it that there are good arguments that just aren't in the public domain? Is it that there aren't good arguments and we should be working on this issue? Um, and so what we were going to do last year is basically, and we started this process, we started this process of talking to mainstream computer scientists who we thought were part of the, the actual progress going on in AI, trying to understand their thoughts. Um, but once we found out that there was the FLI conference in Puerto Rico coming up, we said it would be much more efficient for us to pause that investigation, attend the conference, and decide then. And I think the conference made it easier to decide than we had anticipated. Um, we perceived like a reasonably high level of, of people you know, saying that, that AI risk is a real issue and that there are things we can do today to prepare. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that every signatory to the open letter is like fully in agreement with, with everything that, you know, everything that we are thinking of as part of this cause. But certainly, you know, it answered a lot of our questions about whether there are good counter arguments out there that we, hadn't, that we just hadn't heard. And now we feel pretty solid on that. Um, and in the immediate wake of that conference, there was the FLI request for, for proposals for research projects. Um, and there, you know, Elon Musk had put in, uh, had put in a big amount of money, um, but only some of it was available to fund the research projects. And we kind of kept in close touch with FLI to ask whether more would be needed to fund the best work and to basically make the RFP go well. Um, our major, our big bet over the last six months was that because we saw it as a big opportunity um, and we wanted to make sure that process went well. So we were heavily involved in it. Uh, we provided about 1.2 million, or we, we haven't yet finalized, but we're in the stages of finalizing um, a grant of about $1.2 million that we felt uh, was going to be very helpful in ensuring that the strongest projects got funded and the RFP as a whole was kind of a good RFP, a good birth of the field of sort of mainstream AI work on AI safety. Um, so that was kind of, that ended up being our big bet because we saw the opportunity and because it took, you know, it took a good deal of time to kind of follow it all. Um, and that is kind of an example of how we work as we started off the year saying, well, we think our top priority is to hire for biosecurity in this area, but it transformed into the FLI grant and now it's back to biosecurity. So going forward, um, we are running the biosecurity search and also trying to figure out our next steps in AI and we're basically just at the beginning of that process. Um, I think we want to, we understand this field is changing a lot and very fast and so we want to do a landscape. We want to look at who works in this area, who's doing what, who's looking for money for what and where are the gaps and are, are the gaps things that we think we can help fill and things that we want to work on. Um, uh, RFP is a request for proposals. So the, um, basically in the wake of this Puerto Rico conference on AI safety, um, and I'm, I'm skipping over some stuff because I, I feel like this, is, this topic has been discussed elsewhere here, but um, you know, there was a request sent out for people to submit ideas for research they could do on AI safety. Um, and th so that's what the RFP is. And then, and then there was a certain amount of money available for funding the proposals, but a lot of proposals came in, and so we, we ended up determining that more money would be really helpful there. Um, so that is, you know, that is the situation. Um, I haven't talked about the other ones, but I probably will at some point during the Q&A. They're at much earlier stages. We're trying to get them to the point that the first two are at, where we have priorities, uh, we have like strategies, we know what we're trying to do. Um, and in terms of the overall ambitions of the Open Philanthropy Project, I would say that, you know, a, a couple things to note. Um, our top priority right now is just getting, you know, building up the staff, building up the capacity, building up the knowledge, um, that we're going to be able to sort of give away very large amounts of money. And I think even if we're just trying to help Good Ventures give away the money it wants to give away, that's going to be a, a phenomenal challenge. And I think it's going to take a lot of work to get there. Um, but we also have ambitions of influencing other philanthropists as well. So uh, we recently, you know, we recently announced a partnership 
with Caitlin Trigger and Mike Krieger. Mike Krieger is co-founder of Instagram. They are also getting started with their philanthropy, and Caitlin is now spending a couple days a week in the office to learn from us, and they've put in some money toward, our, uh, toward the, the causes and the grants that we're going to recommend. Um, and we do have ambitions over time of basically, you know, I think there's a lot of people, especially in Silicon Valley, who are going to be major philanthropists who haven't started thinking yet, and we are trying to be in the right place at the right time so that when they are ready, when they do start thinking, they know to come to us to start learning, and we can help them learn, and we can help them give as effectively as possible. And so our ambition is definitely to move a massive amount of money philanthropically, and also just to turn generally the world of giving, big-scale giving, into a higher-quality debate. So that's basically where we're at, and uh, with that, I will take questions.